0: A very warm welcome. That's a new Zoom feature. A very warm welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It's great to have you all here. It's great to study together on this lovely Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. So this week, we're going to jump straight in to the Torah portion. This week is the Torah portion of Bahalotcha. And we are up to the third reading for Tuesday. I will share my screen and let's jump in. Okay. So yesterday we read about some instructions vis-a-vis the Levites, getting them prepped, getting them cleansed, getting them um, waved, getting the offerings of the Levites, getting them appointed and handed over to Aaron the Kohen and the other priests for the service. So that's first and second reading. And I just went back to click around just for the sake of uh, kind of pulling it up there on the screen, even for just a moment. So now we're in the third reading. And the narrative shifts away from kind of instructions to, um, to the Levites to more instructions for the general populace. All right, and I think you're gonna find today's conversation, today's study, very interesting and compelling. Numbers chapter nine, verse number one. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert. I mean, they've been in the Sinai desert for a while now. If you've been keeping score over there, they've been. That's they got the Torah there and they've been pretty much located in the same vicinity. So this happened, God speaks to Moses in the Sinai desert in the second year of their exodus from the land of Egypt. That means one year later, essentially, right? Second year, meaning year two after the exodus, which would have been year one. Exodus is not year zero, and this is two years later. Exodus is year one, and this is second year, meaning one year later, and this happened in the first month. This would be the month of Nisan. So this is what God says. Let me say this in English. Getting ready for the first anniversary of the Exodus. This is what God tells Moses. In anticipation of the first anniversary. This is going to be the first Passover remembrance. right? The first time it happened. But this will be the first recollection. So this is what should happen. Verse 2. The children of Israel shall make the Passover sacrifice in its appointed time. Remember, the Paschal sacrifice is a reference to the Paschal lamb, the lamb brought on the fourteenth day of the month and eaten on the night of the fifteenth, which will, which will be the commemoration of the Exodus. So here we go. The details on the afternoon of the fourteen. I could write this stuff on the afternoon of the fourteenth of this month. You shall make it the offering in its appointed time, in accordance with all its statutes and all its ordinances, you shall make it. What does that mean in accordance with all its statutes and ordinances? Well, if you look back in the book of Exodus, which we studied a few months ago, so you'll remember and you'll see that um, there's a lot of rules and regs, a lot of rules and regulations associated with the Paschal sacrifice, what type of animal and how it's supposed to be prepared and who should eat it and how they should eat it, all that stuff. Basically, God is saying, look, I want you to do it. The first anniversary i want you to do this mitzvah um on the first passover commemoration do it like i told you in egypt to do it so i just want to clarify what i just said in egypt god was telling moses how this day should be remembered for all time right there was a bit of a um of a snapshot for posterity taken a bit of a um you know how are we going to celebrate this for generations that conversation happened while still, in, while still in Egypt. And now, one year later, God is saying, let's make it happen. Let's do this. Let's do this thing. Um, okay, so that's God's command. Let's pull up Rashi. Um, Rashi, Rashi, Rashi. Take a look. In the first month. This is a powerful Rashi. The portion at the beginning of the book of Numbers is not set until the month of Er, which is month two, which is after the anniversary First anniversary of Passover, so from this you learn that there is no chronological order in the Torah. Again, I mentioned this yesterday, but the fact that the book of sorry, the book of Numbers opens with the account of what's happening in the second month, and now we're talking about what happened one month prior tells us that the Torah is not written necessarily in chronological order. It doesn't have to be in chronological order, but Rashi asks the obvious question. Or the outstanding question, which is, but why did Scripture not begin with this chapter? In other words, Torah doesn't need to go in chronological order. But why didn't it? Why didn't the Book of, of Numbers begin with the first anniversary of Passover? Listen to this. Rashi explains: For it is a disgrace to Israel that throughout the forty years the children of Israel were in the de- sorry that throughout the forty years the children of Israel were in the desert, they brought only this. Passover sacrifice alone. For 40 years, they wandered and traveled and traversed the Midbar, the desert, the wilderness. And only one of those years did they bring the Paschal Lamb, the offering, and celebrate Passover, as was told by God to Moses in Egypt. And that was this one time. In other words, the other 39 years, They didn't celebrate Passover. You might be wondering, that sounds terrible. What's going on? Before we address that, why didn't they? Rashi says that because this was the only time in those 40 years that they celebrated, essentially celebrated Passover, so it's kind of buried a little bit in the book of Numbers to not start off with it, because if we started off with it, then it would kind of set up the disgrace, right? As Rashi says, disgrace, to be even more acute, right? If you start the book with the Jews celebrate Passover and they they didn't do it again for another 40 years, for another 39 years, that would be a little bit shameful. So it kind of buries it, you know, nine chapters in, it mentions this idea. Now as to why didn't they mark it or celebrate it for the other 39 years, I'm going to get back to that in a moment when I weave together a few of the narratives of this reading. So stay with me. I'm going to answer that question um, we're going to get there. Does this, this make sense so far? So far so good? Yes? Okay. So God is essentially, right, without this question and answer, basically God is telling Moses to tell the people about celebrating Passover and bring the Paschal Lamb, bring that offering. So Moses relates this to the Jewish people. Moses spoke, verse 4, to the children of Israel instructing them to make the Passover sacrifice. And so they did. Verse 5. So they made The Passover sacrifice in the first month on the afternoon of the 14th day of the month in the Sinai Desert. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel do. They did everything they were asked to do. They did it perfectly. Now we get to a bit of a curveball. Right, All good plans have a monkey wrench in them. Here we go. Verse 6, no exception. There were men who were ritually unclean. That doesn't mean physically. Ritually means spiritually unclean. They were tamay. Why? Because of contact with a dead person, which I think you and I know by now is the most severe form or um, cause of ritual impurity for a human being is coming in contact with a dead body. So these are people, yeah. So these are people that had come in contact with a dead person. And because of that, take let's, let's continue this verse. And therefore, they could not make the Passover sacrifice on that day. They were just unable to do it. So they approached Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, Moses, we are ritually unclean because of contact with the dead person. But why should we be excluded? So as not to bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed time, with all the children of Israel. In other words, they complained and they asked, I don't know if they complained, maybe they did a little bit, but they said essentially that we are being left out and we don't want to be left out. We do not want to be excluded. Why should we be excluded? We want to have an opportunity to do this mitzvah just like everybody else. But we can't because part of the rules and regulations of the Paschal sacrifices it can only be brought by somebody And consumed by somebody in a state of ritual purity, and someone who is um, in contact with a dead person is excluded from that. So they could not bring the offering. They go to Moses and say, "It's rigged. The rules are rigged against us. We can't do it. We want to. We want to be able to do it." We're gonna uh, we're gonna explore this deeper, but let's let's move through the narrative so we get the story. Verse number eight. So Moses said to them, to these people that were ritually impure, wait. Wait here for a moment, and I will hear what the Lord instructs concerning you. In other words, let me bring it up with the boss, and I'll let you know what he said. This is kind of like the, can you? Can I speak to your manager type thing, although they didn't ask it. But Moses transfers. Well, he speaks to the manager, speaks to God, and then delivers the information. So this is what happens next. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, obviously Moses presents the issue, and God replies the following. Speak to the children of Israel saying. In other words, now this, this case that came up is going to now be a template for a new mitzvah that we got in response to the request. Are you with me on that? In other words, this instruction is coming now as a response to the request and or demand of the people who were impure. So here's the new command. Here's the new mitzvah. Any person who becomes unclean from contact with the dead or is on a distant journey whether among you or, in those now or in future generations, he shall make a Passover sacrifice for the Lord when in the second month, on the 14th day in the afternoon, they shall make it. They shall eat it with unleavened cakes and bitter herbs. In other words, I need to emphasize what this means or clarify what that means. The mitzvah is, the new mitzvah, is that one month later, you can bring your Paschal lamb, and it's considered as if you did the mitzvah. Even though it's exactly 30 days, or exactly one month later, it's like you did the mitzvah, just like everybody else. So if you, not you, if a person was unclean, was impure, or they were on a distant journey, they just weren't around Jerusalem in the temple, they had—they were able to bring it 30 days later, or a month later, on the fourteenth day of the second month, which is Er, and they do it also in the afternoon, and they also eat it with the matzah and the mar, the unleavened cakes and the bitter herbs. Same deal. Verse twelve. It has the same regulations. They shall not leave over anything from it until the next morning. In other words, you have to eat it that night. Right. This is this is what we call Pesach Sheni, the second Passover or second chance for Passover. Passover two the adventure continues, right? So you can now bring it the next month, if you weren't able to bring it that, that, that original time. One month later, you can bring it. Same rules, you have to eat it that night. You can't leave over any um, part of that Paschal lamb until the next morning. In other words, once daybreak comes the next day, it's no good. And when you prepare it and eat it, they shall not break any of its bones. Commentators explain that that's a sign of wealth not only wealth, but a sign of royalty and freedom. is not breaking the bones. Someone who's impoverished, a slave, would break all the bones to suck out the marrow because you're trying to maximize all the, the food that you can get from any given dish. But uh, someone who's royalty doesn't need to break the bones. Number one, you have staff for that. But number two, there's plenty to eat. You don't need to actually um, get, so, uh, you know, get so involved. And they shall make it in accordance with all the statutes connected with the Passover sacrifice. In other words, it's the same deal one month later. But, verse 13, the man who was ritually clean and was not on a journey, yet refrained from making the Passover sacrifice, someone who said, yeah, I'm going to skip it, I'm not going to do it. In other words, lest you think that now we become cavalier about Passover, God wants to, uh, you know, make sure that that is not the implication that's being given. Um, If somebody is cavalier about it and says, Nah, you know, I'm just not going to do it. So his soul shall be cut off from his people. That's a spiritual form of punishment known as karet, where there's a spiritual excision of the soul, which we've talked about before. And why does this happen? For he did not bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed time. That person shall bear his sin. So again, Pesach Sheni, Passover 2, is given is allowed for those that were unable to do it. It's not an excuse for someone to say, I'm not going to bother. You with me in the distinction? Okay, let's continue. If, verse 14, if a proselyte dwells with you, and he makes a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, according to the statutes of the Passover sacrifice and its ordinances, he shall make it. Same deal. One statute shall apply to you one set of laws, to the proselyte and to the native-born citizen." This is a refrain. We've had this before, even just a few weeks ago, we had similar verses. Um, Torah emphasizes in many places, this is one of them, about one set of laws. This is a major theme in Torah, a major Jewish theme in, in the Jewish justice system, which differs from ancient civilizations. This is something we spoke about, if you recall, in our JLI course, Judaism's gifts to the world. To the to the world that we did about a year and when did we do that? About a year and a half ago. A year, yeah, something like that, right before COVID. So we did we did it a little bit a little bit over a year ago, and the 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 emphasis was or the idea was that other nations, including the, the, the most sophisticated, like Greece and Rome, the mightiest, the most powerful nations, they had two sets of laws. One set for the haves and the others, and the other set of laws for those that they deemed to be the have-nots. They had one for the aristocracy and one for the peasantry, or whatever they called them, then the, 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 the lower class or the second class citizens. And we read in that course, there's actually legal, legal texts that, that delineate For the same crime, different consequences. If you were part of the, I I think that the word was honestorius, or the 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 upper crust of society, versus the opposite. So, you know, the same crime. If you were, if you had connections, would only you know would only evoke uh, minimal punishment. Whereas if you were in a different segment of society, it could be the worst, could be the end of it all. If you did that crime. So what's the point? Torah says it's the same law. There's one law for everyone, for the native, for the stranger, for the proselyte, etc. There's one set of laws. Now, I want to go back and and do a few things here. So we have an open question, which is why did they only do the Passover offering that first year? Um, Why is it considered to be a disgrace? Well, it sounds like we know why, but why did they Indeed, only do that first year. And what's the deeper, deeper meaning of this um, Pesach Sheni, the second Passover story, this narrative of these people? And who were they? Who were these people anyway? So I'm going to toggle Rashi. Okay? Rashi does not comment here and explain who they were, that they were unclean. Why were they unclean? But there are sources, there are sources and and commentaries that explain that these were the people, perhaps, that were carrying the remains of Joseph. If you recall, Joseph, before he passed away, this is like hundreds of years prior, Joseph had told his family, bury me in Egypt. Unlike his father, Jacob, who said, don't put me here in Egypt, take me back home. Joseph says... You can put me here in Egypt, but when you leave, when you're redeemed, when you have the geula, when you have redemption, when you have the exodus, take me with you. Do not leave me behind. And the Jewish people promised, his family promised, and indeed it was the night of the exodus. We've to- I've told the story many times, and Moses himself was looking for Joseph's remains. He didn't know. They got word, he put a piece of paper, it was under the Nile, the coffin floated, and he took Joseph's remains, and they, they, they bounced out of Dodge with Joseph and the Jewish people. Well, there was a bit of a committee, it seems, that carried Joseph's remains through those 40 years of traveling. And so, according to one understanding, these were the people that came to Moses and Aaron and said, you didn't give us enough warning, we don't have time, we have a good excuse, We're impure, we're carrying Joseph's remains. Why are we left out? I need to to emphasize something that the Rebbe emphasized many times about this story. Here you have people that have a built-in excuse. They have the best excuse money can buy. It's not even money can buy. They're, They're totally in the clear. And what do I mean by they're totally in the clear? The law says that if you're impure, you can't bring the offering. Great. They're off the hook. Right, If you're looking for a way out, you're, you've got a way out. And, and It's not that they were negligent. It's not that they were guilty of something, of, you know, of uh, violating this, this mitzvah. They weren't able to do it. They were doing another mitzvah. So what's the problem? They were doing a mitzvah, carrying Joseph's remains. They don't have an opportunity to do this mitzvah. It's fine. It's good. Enjoy. Enjoy your freedom. Enjoy, enjoy one less mitzvah to, to be obligated in. But that's not how they looked at it. That's not how they looked at it. The whole point of the story or one of the major ideas of the story at least is that they did not look at it as, you know, dodge the bullet. Don't have to do that one, right? They looked at it as an opportunity that was being withheld from them. In other words, they were passionate about Judaism. They were passionate about Torah. They were passionate about the mitzvot. They were passionate about the Carbon pace Pesach, the Paschal offering. And all they wanted was to bring it. So when you told them, when Moses tells them, by the way, God said, you have to be pure. They said to themselves, we're impure. We're not going to get pure in time. There's not enough time to get pure before this offering needs to be brought. We're out. We're being excluded. And they go to Moses and they speak up. And they speak up in a strong way, but in a respectful way. They didn't say, they didn't pull this shtick. You know what shtick is, right? This uh Shenanigans where they're like, Oh, I can't believe you did this to us, Moses. You hate us. why did you take us out of Egypt? They didn't. That's that's a refrain that the Jews did other times. The, those that were the rabble rousers and the kvetchers, and the you know, the ones that were trying to derail progress, that's where they went. These guys, if you look back at the verses, very respectful, but very passionate, very forceful. And their expression of why are we being left out? That's not you know, Moses, you're a terrible leader, or you're, you know, God forbid, or you're, God forbid, misrepresent. We don't believe you're representing God's word properly. That's not what they said. They said, we believe you and we love you and we know you love us, but why are we being left out? It hurts. It hurts. And Moses conveys it to God, and God conveys to Moses, they have a second chance. And from this, we learned the next lesson. So lesson number one is, fight for what you're passionate about. Fight for it. Lesson number two. There's always a second chance. Nishta came for a fallen. It's never too late. Okay, you know, sometimes, you know, you miss the train, you miss the train. But there's always another train going. I've told this story before. My sister got married on a boat on the three rivers in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you've heard me tell this before? They got married on a boat. Now in Jewish law, it literally says you, you're not allowed to get married on a boat. Why? Because you're not supposed to get married on a moving vessel. So they anchored it right in the middle. If anybody's familiar with Pittsburgh, you know there are three stadiums. The uh, Allegheny, the Monongahela, and the Ohio River converge. That's where the old Three Rivers Stadium was. Now, but Three Rivers is not a corporation that can pay money. So it's no longer called Three Rivers Stadium. It's called PNC Park or whatever it's called because they can have the naming rights. And Heinz Field... Is also there, and they got rid of the old concrete through River Stadium. But I digress back to the story. So, we they got married on a boat on the water, it was anchored, so it was kosher. But if you came late to that wedding, yeah, you guessed it, you missed the boat. So, look, sometimes you gotta gotta paddle out to shore, you gotta take it like a a rowboat and kind of like you know, hook on and and scaffold up. Yeah, Donna, I was married in the In the sky, (laughs) what? (laughs) Original building of the world, 1964 World Fair. Oh wow! Elevated in Flushing. Yeah. It it was an elevated structure, and I had gone as a little girl with my parents. Nice. You know, and and it was very close to us. And then I made the illusion. My father had already passed away, but I made the illusion that we were in the sky. He was about to. Right. That's beautiful. my theme song was Fly Me to the Moon. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And when I'm when I on the plane now, coming in you know, to New York and stuff, I can see the... You know, the um... Is that structure still there? Yes, that's like one of the... That structure, and there's another building structure, and then there's the Unisphere. That's all that remains. Yeah, that globe, that, that globe thing. My grandfather, when we would drive by there, he would also point out... About the World's Fair, they were—he was into that also. Like, but I, but I think there was like a one that was you know earlier than that. I don't know how often they came around. I don't know the history of them. But he used to speak about the World's Fair. He was really into that also. Um, sounds beautiful, yeah. But so look, listen. So I was saying about missing the boat. Sometimes you know it's you know you miss it, you miss it. But when it comes to spiritual matters, certainly when speaking about God. The idea here is there's always a second chance. I mean, think about Yom Kippur, right? Every year we say the same confession. This, but this year I really mean it, and please God we do. But but even if we slip up again, we know we have another Yom Kippur to atone and to confess and to you know to to, 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 to recorrect. One way of thinking about this is about the GPS, right? One thing I love about GPS, it's very non-judgmental. Right. If you miss a turn, it doesn't say, well, I can't. I told you turn right. What were you think? It doesn't do that. Right. It's not a person. People do that. Right. The GPS doesn't do that. It just says no problem. It stays cool as a cucumber and it just says, you know, recalculating route. And it just spits out the next. There's a way there's there's a way to fix this. Just go another mile, make a left, then another left. And you're you're back before you know it, you're back on track. That is Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is, you missed it the first time around, don't worry, it's coming back. You got another chance, you got another exit, take it easy, right? Don't get so caught up in the drama. Sometimes we kind of rule ourselves out because we think like, well, I'm out, then I'm out. And it's really important to realize that there's always a way in. I hope that makes sense. Okay, why? Yes, Joy. It does seem to me that, I know this is kind of an aside, but it seems like caring for the dead should be a mitzvah and that people should be um given honors for doing Yes. That, that we need these people Yes. That we're caring for our dead. Yes, 100%. I agree with you. And that that's part of what I think hurt for them is that they were doing like what we consider to be the greatest mitzvah. It's Chesed shel Emes. It's called a kindness of truth because it's the only kindness that the one that you're doing kindness to can't repay. I, I, don't, I don't know if I said that clearly enough. When a person helps lay to rest or respect one who's passed away, it's considered to be a pure form of kindness because there's no expectation of getting paid back. When you do somebody a favor, there's always, even if you're not doing it for that expectation, but there's always a chance that you know, maybe you're going to get from that direct party. When a person has passed, again, spiritually, sure, but physically, you know, on the ground, you're not going to get something back from that person. So it's pure. So I'm just further agreeing with you, saying, yes, you are correct. But on a the technicality, they couldn't bring the offering because you had to be pure. And so they said, this doesn't sound right to us. Like we're doing this stuff and, and we're being, you know, withheld from this big mitzvah that we want to do. Let's let's get a solution here, and indeed a solution comes. So, and by the way, in general, the message is sometimes you gotta just knock, knock, knock on the door to get to get what you want. If because you could, let me phrase it with a question, right? If God, if God had Pesach Sheni up his sleeve, then why didn't he bust it out initially and tell Moses? By the way, there's a, there's the The Paschal Lamb on the 14th of Nisan. And if not, you can do it the next one. And then there wouldn't be a question. There wouldn't be a complaint. Why didn't God initially, you know, offer this as a a fallback? And the answer is, one of the answers is, because God also wants human intervention. Not intervention, human uh, effort. He wants us to knock on the door. And then the door is open. He could do everything himself. He wants us to knock on the door. Now, I just want to kind of tie a, a, a loose end together here that we spoke, that, that I mentioned, just very quickly. So, and, th- and that loose end is, well, why did they only bring the Paschal Lamb that first year? The answer is because when you look back at the original verses in Exodus, it says that you're supposed to bring the Paschal Lamb every year on Passover, on the anniversary, when you're in the land of Israel, when you enter the land of Israel. And since they weren't yet in Israel, so they, di- they didn't do it. Why did they do it this first time, this first, this first anniversary? Because God said. God said in a specific one-time desert wilderness exception, God said, all right, the first year anniversary, we're going to do it. But after that, wait till, uh, wait till Israel. And that's where they waited 39 years. But now we have to understand why Rashi says it was a disgrace. If, if it was per design that they were not bringing the Paschal Lamb until they got into Israel with the exception of this one one-time-only deal, so then why is it a disgrace? And I'll share with you very quickly what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says that just like the Jews, some Jews pushed and got Pesach Shani and got a second chance, the the entire Jewish people should have pushed to get an allowance, an opening, to bring the Paschal Lamb every year, even before entering the land of Israel. Imagine if all the Jews would have gathered together with Moses and said to Moses, listen, we know we're not obligated. We know we're not obligated to, to observe Passover with the lamb until we get into Israel. But we want to do this. We really want to. We, and they knocked on the door forcefully but respectfully. Perhaps the door would have opened. Hence, Rashi says, the way the Rebbe explains it, it's a disgrace Because look what happens when you knock. You got a second Passover. A month later, you could have not then gotten 39 years of Passover in the desert. But they didn't. They said, we don't have to. These people did for themselves. But collectively, we as a people didn't knock on the door and say, we want this. Even though we don't have to. They said, it's not a mitzvah until we get into Israel. So the first year, fine. The first anniversary, fine. But until we get into Israel... then then, then we're not going to bother. That's hence the disgrace. So what's the moral of the story? Not only can we knock on the door, but we must. And if we don't, it's not nice. God wants us to knock on the door and to open up new possibilities. So I'll, I'll conclude with this note about prayer. Prayer is all about knocking on the door. Prayer is saying, here's the status quo, but here's what I want it to be instead. Right? The status quo is X, I want it to be why. I want it to be different. I'm not happy with my current situation. I'm not satisfied with my, whether it's the physical stuff, spiritual stuff, whatever, materially, spiritually. I want something better. I want something grander. And God wants us to pray, wants us to request this, wants us to knock on the door so that new channels can open up. We had a prayer course a few years ago, and one of the major ideas of that course is Prayer is designed to open up new channels, but not really new, new channels, channels that God already has as a possibility if we knock. So we don't have to think that who are we to knock on the door? If God wants it this way, then that's certainly God's will. That should not be our line of thinking. That's never the Jewish way of thinking. Status quo must be divine, uh, so then, then, then who am I to, to bother God? No, God wants you to access this other amazing opportunity that can only be accessed when you put in the effort and knock. That's the power of prayer, and that's the power of, of requesting. Yeah, Donna. That's why I like the concept of Elijah throughout the year, like leave the door open for Elijah. I love that. If yeah, Yes. That's great. I love that imagery. Yeah, that's a, that's a great Passover imagery connection and Elijah, Mashiach, right? Which is a win-win-win all around. The idea of, you're right, opening the door. Be open to the possibilities. Be open to new channels. If we stay closed in the status quo, well, this is it, and this is the way it's going to be, then we're not going to have what we could truly have. All right, good. So that's it for the Chumash for today. And we're going to pick it. Yeah? Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Excellent question. So here's the thing. I realized yesterday... Let me quickly double check this. Hold on. I checked yesterday. And it seems that we have a... Preschool end of year celebration at 1245 at our preschool. So here's the thing we could do at 12 to 1230, 30 minute in-person DPP. I'm open to that, but I feel like, I don't know if it's enough time to really bring everybody out and and do the thing. So I think just for, and I'm going to be super tempted to, um, you know, to stay in schmooze and whatever. And, uh, and Reeves is gonna definitely want me there for the celebration at twelve forty-five. So I think just for, um, for the timing, you know, for this end of year preschool celebration timing, I think we'll um, we'll do it online tomorrow. Um, okay, good. Would it be helpful to start at eleven forty-five? Um, oh, that's a good question. Could we start it earlier? I mean, would it be helpful to you? Right, right, right. You're saying even the online one to start earlier. Possibly. I mean, let's right now, let's keep it for 12. And then if I want to shift it, I can, I can, uh, um, I'll send out a message about that. But I don't mind doing it. I'm just, you know, keeping it a little bit more, a little bit more focused. All right. If you guys have time, if, if, uh, if you guys are up to it, let's do a little bit of Mishnai's Um, In honor of my grandfather, let's... Bye, Rabbi. See you tomorrow. Bye. We'll see you. See you, Donna. Okay, so let's pull up. Why can't I find this now? Oh, here we go. Okay, chapter five of Brachot. Here we go. We've been studying um, tractate Brachot in honor of my grandfather Svi Hirsch ben Chaim Mishayo Akohen, um, and this fifth chapter speaks about the general um, approach that we are to take to prayer and the type of um, meditation and and and, and inner the, the, the inner state of being. So chapter five begins. And says, hold on one second, let me get this toggled up here. Okay, it says, one may only stand and begin to pray from an approach of gravity and submission. Gravity doesn't mean, the physics definition of gravity means from a place of seriousness or a place of, you know, a place of, that this, this is meaningful. There is a tradition that the early generations of pious men would wait one hour in order to reach the solemn frame of mind appropriate for prayer. So they would you know, meditate or whatever is for a full hour, and only then would they pray so that they would focus their hearts toward their Father in Heaven. So the implication of this is that it's hard to go into prayer cold. It's like, all right, I was checking my email, I was writing up something, and now time to pray, let's jump right in. Prayer is not just something you say. It's something, it's really a state of being. And to get into that state, it takes a little bit. This is obviously easier with the morning prayer, where you can kind of get prepared for it. The middle of the day prayer, pretty. It, it's, it's going to be harder to, to, to pull this off. Standing in prayer, let's continue. Standing in prayer is standing before God and such. And as such, even if a king greets him in the middle of the Amidah, he should not respond to him. And even if a snake is wrapped on his heel, he should not interrupt his prayer. Um, Yes. Yes. This commentary... Hey there. This commentary is um, interesting because I don't know who this is on this uh, website, but it's th- whoever this is writes, I don't believe that these statements are meant to be taken literally. I, I, I'm not sure who wrote this, but thats a, I think it's a hilarious line. In other words, all right, it doesn't mean literally, you know, give up your life for the Amida, but it's kind of like bringing out how important the Amida is. You know, let's using maybe some hyperbolic language. Somebody's really getting into it. Um, for me, the task of concentrating comes not when a snake is wrapped around my leg, <laughs> but when one or more of my children is. That's a good line. Okay, right? so the kids are, are vying for attention, etc. Um, all right, good, fine. So, some. Uh, I, I just think that's a, a very interesting language there on the side. So, what's the point? The point is that prayer is meant to be a reverent. Experience or an experience that's done with reverence and solemnity, so it has to be done in the right framework. Okay, next, here we go. The Talmud, sorry, the Mishnah continues to discuss and explore the blessings of the Amida. All right, so let's jump inside, back inside the main text. This mission speaks of additions to the standard formula of the Amida prayer and the blessings in which they are incorporated. So one mentions the might of rain and recites, he, God, makes the wind blow and the rain fall, and the second blessing of the Amida prayer, the blessing of the revival of the dead. So you mention rain in the context of the blessing where we ask God uh, to revive the dead. And the request for rain we make and grant due and rain and blessing is in the ninth blessing of the Amida prayer, the blessing of the years. Okay, and that's basically the um, the the blessing for I don't know blessing for the years, it's really a blessing for uh, livelihood, parnasa and bounty, physical bounty. The prayer for distinction havdalah between holy and profane, recite in the evening prayer following Shabbat and festivals, you do a mini havdalah in the Amida Saturday night. So that's done in the fourth blessing in the prayer who graciously grants knowledge because Knowledge is distinction, the distinction to know this from that, light from darkness, right from wrong. And so we say then the Havdalah in that fourth prayer. So basically these are these are blessings um, that are inserted into one of the 18-19 blessings that already exist. Rabbi Kiva says Havdalah is recited as an independent fourth blessing. Rabbi Leeser says that it is recited in the 17th blessing of the Amidah prayer, the blessing of Thanksgiving. So different different opinions as to when that is done. Okay, let's continue. Concluding the laws of prayer in this tractate, the Mishnah raises several prayer-related matters. Now, this Mishnah that we're about to do speaks of certain innovations in the prayer formula that warrant the silencing of a communal prayer leader who attempts to introduce them in his prayers as their content tends toward heresy. You with me on this? Basically, if somebody starts freestyling in the prayers and adding on their own prayers, bordering on heresy, the community is allowed to silence them for um, jumping into this. So, one who recites in a supplication, just as your mercy is extended to a bird's nest, as you've commanded us to send away the mother before taking her chicks or eggs, so too extend your mercy to us. So, if somebody says, God, extend your mercy to us like you extend your mercy to a bird's nest by, sending, by giving the mitzvah to send away the mother before taking the eggs. Um, and, or who, one who recites, may your name be mentioned with the good. Or one who recites, we give thanks, we give thanks twice. So they silence him. The congregation should silence um, this congregational leader because they're, they're, they're saying things that are a little too, although it sounds innocent, a little too heretical. Um, And the reason is because the Talmud explains because the mitzvah of the bird's nest is not necessarily about mercy and naming be mentioned for the good. What does that imply? That there's not good also and why give thanks twice? It may sound like there's two sources, uh, polytheism, etc. So all of these things are prayer um, amendments that one should not do because it borders on heretical thought. All right, this mission, the next one deal with the communal prayer leader. So if one says... May the, may the good bless you. May the good, not God, may the good bless you. This is a path of heresy. One who is passing before, because who's the good, right? One who is passing before the ark as the prayer leader and erred, another should immediately pass in his place. And at that moment, the replacement should not refuse in the interest of courtesy. So again, um, if there is an error of the prayer leader, then somebody else should be... One second. Yeah, take a look at the commentary on the side over there. This refers again to a person leading public prayer, one who passes before the ark. If he makes a mistake, for instance, he loses track of what blessing he was reciting or he says the wrong elements within a blessing. You know, this is, the, the, the printing press and Sidurian prayer books weren't always around. So this is an era in which maybe they prayed more from memory or from notes, shorthand, um, etc. We should, so somebody else should replace him. We should remember that in the time of the Mishnah, they did not have prayer books. The tefillah would have to be recited by memory. So if somebody was making a mistake and had difficulty getting back on track, you couldn't just, you know, reference the book. So somebody else would take over. All right, very pragmatic, very practical in this Mishnah. The Amidah prayer was interrupted and he should not replace back inside. The Amidah prayer was interrupted. He should replace him as quickly as possible. From where does the replacement commence? From the beginning of the blessing in which the former has er- had erred. So you don't have to start from the beginning. Somebody else swoops in and takes over the Amida um, repetition. Um, okay, let's see how much we have here. Okay, so just, just another Mishnah or two. In order to prevent the prayer leader, this is Mishnah 4, in order to prevent the prayer leader from erring in his prayer, it was said that one who passes before the ark, in other words, the chazan, the, the cantor, the, the leader, should not respond the main after the blessing of the priest, Because of potential confusion. Since the mission is describing a situation in which he was praying without a prayer book, responding on main would interrupt the order of the prayer and potentially lead him to begin a different blessing. So again, it's all about keeping the chazen, keeping the the congregational leader on track and not being distracted um, or confused. For this reason, even if there is no other priest other than the communal prayer leader himself, he does not lift his hand to bless the people lest he become confused. Now, we actually don't do that today. We actually do have the communal prayer leader uh, bless the congregation if he's a Kohen, but back then, the mission says they didn't do this. He did not lift his hand. Okay. Um, Okay, and however, if he is certain that he... Oh, I'm sorry, maybe this is where it comes from. And however, if he is certain that he can lift his hands and resume his prayer without becoming confused, he is permitted to recite the priestly blessing, and that's what we do today. That's what I was referencing. Today, we have a prayer book, so... Hopefully, there's no confusion because if you forget where you're up to, you just look inside and you're good to go. You just read the text from the prayer book. So again, another Mishnah detailing ways in which we want to make sure that the congregational leader is not going to get confused in his prayers. All right, let's conclude this chapter. So concluding its discussion of the halacha, the laws of prayer, the Mishnah discusses less Practical aspects of prayer so not so practical, but we're still discussing it one who prays and Realizes that he had erred in his prayer Says the Mishnah. It is a bad omen for him. Well, that's not great right bad omen um, For him it indicates to him that his prayer was not accepted now we're getting into some omen Omenology and if he who erred is the communal prayer leader it is a bad omen for those who sent him, because a person's agent has legal status equivalent to his own. So if he's, if he's making mistakes and he's representing the community, aye, that's a bad sign for the community. On a similar note, they said about Rabbi Janina Mendoza that he would pray, who was a great rabbi and a miracle worker, it says that he, sorry, it's, they said about him that he would pray on behalf of the sick, and immediately after his prayer, he would say, this one shall recover from his illness and live, and this one shall die. When they said to him, From where do you know? He said to them, If my prayer is fluent in my mouth as I recite it and there are no errors, I know my prayer is accepted. And if not, I know that my prayer is rejected. So when he would pray for someone, when he was finished, he would be able to tell if it was going to go through or not based on how fluent it was. That's Rebbe Chineda Mendoza. Don't try this at home necessarily. Do try prayer at home for others but I don't know that we can prognosticate and predict like he did. Nonetheless, there's something about the fluency of the prayers, at least according to the mission in those times, that was symbolic of kind of how things would play out in the, uh, in the prayer request. All right, that's it for today. We just um, concluded the chapter. This was chapter number, hold on, what was that? Chapter 5 of Brachot, 5 out of 9. So we're making uh, pretty good progress. Um. good, I think that's it for today questions, comments good, Joy, it's great to see you Matt, it's great to see you glad you could join us alright everybody have a wonderful day and we'll see you please God tomorrow or tonight for JLI, alright, take care see you